0: Welcome to an unplanned surprise on another episode of Disclosure. My name is Sean Boonstra, host of this program brought to you by The Voice of Prophecy. This is our flagship program, and this episode is a surprise because, well, this one was pre-recorded a little bit, and so you can't call in live or anything like that, but... Uh, Natalie, my daughter and I had so much fun doing an episode l- a little while ago that before she went away to the airport to break her mother's heart and move across the country yet again, um, she, uh, she I, I arrested her on the spot. I refused to drive her to the airport unless she did another show with me.
1: yeah, so i'm I'm here by no choice of my own. No, well, just you have no ride to the airport. <laughs> yeah, you have no, no ride to
0: the airport because you smashed up your mom's car.
1: Okay, no, I didn't. I a lady <laughs> veered into me in traffic, but everyone's okay. But it wasn't my the fault. The car's
0: not entirely okay; it's drivable, but it does have a ding in it. And I know it wasn't well, your fault. The police actually determined you had nothing to do with it. So, yeah. but uh, that doesn't mean you've never scratched a car, does it?
1: Well, this incident was not my
0: fault. Completely yeah. <laughs> not your fault. No, completely not your fault. But, but is it? Look, I scratched my dad's car rather profoundly.
1: Yeah. Maybe let's just say it's a yeah, rite a scr- of passage. Yeah, it's- a
0: scratch, a scratch. What you did was a little scratch way back when, when you were learning to drive. Yeah. And what I did was not technically a scratch. It was a driving the car off a cliff. That's what it was. <laughs> I drove it off the cliff to impress some girls. Would you be impressed by a guy who drove the car off a cliff?
1: No, probably not. No.
0: See, you brought your Bible with you. I'm glad I did. of that. You have the privilege of going to a marvelous Christian college. You're at Southern, absolutely, in uh, well near Chattanooga, Tennessee. You're actually in the yeah. village of College Dale, and that's uh, right. I think I actually see one of your professors' daughters in the control room laughing at you. She's laughing at you. And, <laughs>
1: oh yeah, that's and, amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah. So we have a few people here with connections to Southern. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to hold you by because you were asking me the Bible questions that people ask. And uh, yeah. you managed to collect an assembly of some very interesting ones. And we only answered about five in the last program we did together. And so I've kept you here to do a few more. What do you think of that?
1: I think that's an excellent idea. And why was it that you only were able to answer five?
0: I was only able to answer five because you talked so long in that last episode. Right. That I couldn't get a word in edgewise.
1: That's, I think the viewers will let them decide who <laughs> talked and who listened.
0: Well, they need to listen to your radio show over there in Tennessee and they'll figure out that you're pretty wordy yourself.
1: I can be. Yeah. yeah. What
0: What's the name of your show?
1: Um. Well, it's a new segment on WSMC, the classical music station. Ah,
0: I like classical music. I do too. And if I wanted to listen to that segment, I know I plugged it last time, but hey, you're my daughter, it's my show. <laughs> Let's plug your segment. What What? When can people listen to that?
1: They can listen to it on Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. In
0: other words, when everybody in Tennessee is asleep.
1: Well, maybe some people get up and... Do things on Sunday. Keep working on it. I've heard
0: that I've seen you record the segments, and one day they're going to give you prime time. They'll give you drive time. And there you go. It'll be the Natalie show. I don't know <laughs> what your last name will be. Maybe it'll be Boonstra. Maybe not. Who knows?
1: Who knows? So Can't you make point?
0: your your future husband take your last name?
1: Um, that might be a bit weird, but
0: I think you can do that. I, I th- think you can do that. You could do it. Yeah, Boonstra but- is such a great name.
1: It's a very unique name. No, no one there's else millions has it, of us. Really? I often ask
0: people when I check into a hotel, you know, am I the first Boonster here today? Can't be. And they go, well, yeah, I think you're the first one ever. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I haven't met any other Boonstras outside right. of our family. All right, let's
0: get to the Bible. Let's okay. get to our Bible study and your Bible questions. Speaking of your future husband, what's that first question? I'm peeking at it across the desk.
1: Oh, my. Um, is polygamy a sin?
0: Yes. Don't do it, Natalie. Okay. Why are you asking?
1: I'm not asking. (laughs) I'm just reading the questions.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, yeah. Polygamy is an interesting situation because in the past people have tried to justify it Mm
2: -hmm. by the
0: fact that some rather prominent Bible characters uh, and and good Bible characters were indeed polygamists. Right. And, of course, a polygamist is somebody who marries more than one wife. A bigamist is somebody with two wives. A polygamist is somebody with lots of wives. There's an interesting case that came out of the earliest days of the Lutheran Church. There was a Luther, there was a German prince who wanted to marry a second wife, and he needed Luther to say that was okay. Mm-hmm. There's a crisis. This is a big crisis in the earliest days of the Reformation. This happens over the year of 1539 to 1540. You know, roughly when I was a little boy, <laughs> <laughs> back yeah. in the 15, and. Um, and this crisis showed how badly wrong this whole topic of polygamy could go. There's a guy by the name of Philip. He's the Landgrave of Hesse, so he's a, a nobleman, yeah. and he's one of the most powerful Lutheran princes. But the problem was, this guy's also a walking tabloid story. He's a he's a scandal on legs. That's what he is. And he had gotten married at the age of 18, but it was a political arrangement. You know how in mm-hmm. those days it's like, okay, yeah. you're going to marry a girl from this family because then our two families will be united and we shall reign the world, well, right. our area, and bring peace yeah. to the people, Yeah, that kind of thing. But it turns out he hates his first wife. It's mm-hmm. like, ew, I didn't pick this. <laughs> Honestly, I, I didn't yeah. pick this. Uh, not that it stopped him because he still had 10 children with her, so it didn't, you know, she couldn't have been too awful. He had 10 <laughs> children with her. Yeah. Uh, but he was also cheating on her all the time, mm. and that was embarrassing. Here's this supposedly Christian prince who's, um, I saw one author call it unabashed adultery. So he's like, <laughs> yeah. he's not even hiding it. He's no. just running around, but he was tempted by a different solution. I think he felt bad by the fact that he's basically cheating on this wife of his that he's not fond of, and so he wants bigamy. And he says, look, I can have a second wife because Abraham, you know. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Isaac, Jacob—they all had, you know—they had more. Isaac only had the one. Jacob had two.
1: Right. Yeah. Right.
0: So these patriarchs do. And here's the interesting thing: during the Reformation, everything's up for grabs. We get to re-examine everything because we're re-examining all of the doctrines of the church. And uh, and in the name of Christian liberty, why don't we re-examine the doctrine of marriage? Mm-hmm. So the theologian said, "No, bad idea. That is not the right way to go." But they're kind of hesitant because he's got all the power. And the reformers are being protected by the German princes. So Mm -hmm. we don't want to upset Philip, the Landgrave of Hesse, because then he won't protect us. Yeah. So, and and there's another problem is Luther had made jokes out of polygamy publicly. And he once teased his wife in public saying, I should get another wife, you know.
1: (laughs) Sounds like something you would do.
0: It probably, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that probably is something that I would do to mom. I'm not interested in another wife. I can't handle the one I got. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wouldn't want another wife. No. Melanchthon, another reformer, you know, closely tied to Luther, had at one point suggested, look, Henry VIII wanted to um, divorce his wife and get remarried, have an annulment, and the pope wouldn't give him one. Yeah. So he suggested, why don't you just go to bigamy? Why don't you just get another wife? And so already we had public statements from some of these reformers who spoke before they thought on this issue. And in 1539— After getting sick for a little bit, um, this young lady shows up, and Philip really likes her, Philip the Landgrave of Hesse, and now he really wants to marry this gal. So he goes to Luther and Melanchthon, and he gives them an ultimatum. If you don't support me in marrying a second wife, I'm going back to the Pope, and I'm going to be his prince instead, and I'll seek his blessing. So they go, oh, no, the Reformation's in jeopardy, and sadly, they gave in. Hmm. They gave in, and Luther— reluctantly said okay get a second wife i think he regretted that the rest of his days yeah um but in december of 1539 philip got a nice christmas present i suppose and (laughs) luther basically signed off saying you can do this so we have this case where luther regretted it but it has happened and it has happened in christianity did the patriarchs do it no no did the patriarchs like abraham oh yes they did yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah they did yeah is there polygamy in the old testament Yes. yes. Yes, there is. Does that mean we should do it? Here's the big question. Did God tell them to get another wife? Can you find a verse where God says, go and get a whole bunch of wives?
1: Absolutely not. No, you no. can't
0: do it. The pattern in the Bible is one man and one woman. Adam, at creation, is given just one wife. Mm-hmm. So there is the pattern. The counsel we have in the New Testament is that if you want to be a leader in the church, you can only have one wife. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me. Natalie, and and read me verse 2. 1 Timothy, you can just read it off the cheat notes that I stuck in front of you, because I was, knew I was going to ask you to read this verse. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2.
1: Okay. It says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach.
0: Okay, so— Here we're kind of, not that polygamy was rampant in the church in these days, but here we have that same template we have in the Garden of Eden. A bishop is an elder presbyter in the church, and he's got to be the husband of one wife. If you want to Mm -hmm. be a leadership in the church, you've got to conform to God's pattern. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. Go ahead and, and look at that one with me, Matthew 19 and verse 4.
1: It says, and he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife.
0: Okay, wives or wife? Wife. Okay, and what yeah. else?
1: And the two shall become one flesh.
0: What's God's pattern? Two, two become one. one. So no, look at verse 6.
1: So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate.
0: There you go. So, the, the pattern there, Jesus is really referring back to uh, the Genesis account and saying, this is not what I set up in the very beginning. And when I say, Jesus is not what I set up, it's because the Bible clearly identifies Jesus as the agent of creation. In John mm-hmm. chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, and a bunch of places in the New Testament. Yeah. So... Does polygamy happen? Yes. Was it God's idea? No. No. And here's what's interesting. When you find polygamy in the Bible, just in case you're tempted by it, you know, I (laughs) can't imagine (laughs) how many girls would want to marry a guy who wants one more wife?
1: I wouldn't. Not at all.
0: No. Why?
1: Because it's, we're designed to want their sole attention.
0: Right. Yeah. So what would you be worried about if there was a second wife?
1: probably that he would like the other wife more than me. Yeah, It just creates yeah. dissension and yeah. tension
0: and all that kind of thing, right? And that's what happens in the Bible. In every last case of polygamy, it leads to heartache. You've mm-hmm. got hard feelings between Leah and Rachel. Right. It's not going too well. Rachel's not having luck having babies, and at least in the beginning, and that leads to hardship. We've got Hagar and Sarah, right? Yeah. The, Sarah's handmaid. They can't have a child, Abraham and Sarah. At least they're doubting that they can do it on their own. Even right. though God promised it, Sarah says, why don't you sleep with Hagar? And I don't know in what universe that's a great idea. Why would Abraham go for that? We, I guess you, you know. had to be there to see how he <laughs> thought so. that was a good idea. It ends in huge heartbreak. Uh, Hagar has yeah. to leave with her little son Ishmael. It's sad. Mm-hmm. To this day, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac still don't like each other. Yeah. Um, the apostasy of Solomon. He eventually leaves the faith altogether. Had a mm-hmm. thousand wives. Some of them worshiped idols and so on. There's not a single positive example of polygamy in the Bible. No. Does God sometimes tolerate what we do? Sure. Yeah. Um you know the the there's a case in the New Testament where the they're challenging Jesus on the issue of divorce and he says, look, we've allowed certain circumstances, under those circumstances, divorce to happen. But you gotta understand it's happening because of the hardness of your hearts. Mm. And so God always nudges us in the right direction. He bears long with us when we make mistakes. He corrects us when we need correcting um, but the God, the Bible's very honest. That's what I love about it. It's not trying to paint a rosy picture of God's people. It's telling the truth. It's not religious propaganda. And those stories are very instructive for what the model should be between men and women and marriage and household. And there you went again. There's
1: your cue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cue.
0: You used up all my time again. And I'm glad you, this really wasn't your question, right? You're not considering polygamy.
1: I'm not considering polygamy. Don't worry. No,
0: and you're not considering two husbands either, right? No. Because I've already put word on the street over at Southern that boys aren't to get anywhere within a mile of you.
1: Oh, my. Or
0: I will deal with them. I hope you're listening, Southern. I hope you're listening.
1: I hope you're not listening, Southern. We'll be right back after the
0: break. (laughs) Uh, We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Disclosure. I'm on the air with my daughter, Natalie, who's getting on a plane soon, but I've held her back just long enough to do some Bible study on air with her. We'll be right back after this.
1: Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993.
2: Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: Now that the break is over, I probably need to tell the listening audience what my daughter and I were discussing during the break. You were teasing me, saying, look, I'm not going to come home with two husbands, I'll come home with three. (laughs) I honestly don't care how many you come home with. None of them are allowed in the house. They all have to sleep in the car, so you decide how many fit in there. That's how that goes. I'm never (laughs) going to think any guy's good enough for my princess.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: No, No, I don't mind if you date. I just don't mind at all. Um, just That's date good. smart. I know you're a Christian girl, with and you're praying yeah. about it and that kind of thing. And so yeah. what we're going to do on the air right now is, is have a contest, win a dream date with Natalie.
1: Oh my, which right? is it? First
0: caller to call in and get the Bible question right wins a dream date with Natalie.
1: So am I... Allowed to get married or not allowed to get married? I'm oh, getting go ahead and get married. No, <laughs> you,
0: you, no, there is no contest win a dream date with Natalie. Okay. It's win a dream date with Sean. Oh,
1: boy. Yeah. That's a whole other experience. Yeah, it's more of a win a nightmare date. With, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, why don't we get back to the Bible questions? That I'd, seems like a really good idea.
1: I think that's Or should
0: good. we give out your cell number?
1: Let's go to the Bible questions. Okay.
0: Did right. Peter
1: and Paul both die in Rome?
0: Ah, this is Christian history, not recorded in the Bible. We know Paul went to Rome to die. Um, here here it is. Yes, the answer is yes, probably they both died in Rome. I have no reason to doubt that both Peter and Paul died in the city of Rome. The Bible never tells us that Peter went to the city of Rome, but it doesn't say that he didn't either. And the earliest Christian witness that we have from early first and second century Christians tell us that Peter absolutely went to Rome. That's what they say happened. Can't confirm that with scripture, but um, I don't believe we can, but but I have no reason to doubt it. Here's the story. Story goes that Peter was held at the Mamertine prison. This is during the time of Nero. What happened with the emperor Nero is that he wanted to make some renovations to the city of Rome, the story goes. And so he has a chunk of it burned down while he's out of town and People are starting to wonder, did Nero burn down a chunk of the town? Because that was really awful.
1: Extreme home makeover.
0: Right. And so what happened? He says, no, 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 that early sect of Christians did that. Well, the early sect. They were the new sect of Christians then. Yeah. And, you know, those Christians, they're always saying that the world's going to end in fire and that Jesus is coming and there will be fire. And they burned down the city to hasten the coming of Christ and bring about their prophecies, that kind of thing. And so the Christians go through an awful phase. Uh, Nero is taking some of them. There's one occasion where he dipped them in tar, crucified them, nailed them to crosses, and lit them on fire to light up the stadium where they were having their games. They became the living torches that lit Mm. the games and so on. Some were sewn in skins and thrown to the animals, and the animals would rip them apart and so on. You can read that in the Roman historian Tacitus. Um, And there's an old story. Peter's leaving Rome. And this is not in the Bible. It's an old legend. There's been a movie made about this. Peter's trying to leave Rome, and a a voice calls from heaven and says, Quo Vetus, Peter. Mm -hmm. Quo Vetus is um, Latin. And, of course, the voice really probably wasn't speaking Latin to Peter, but that's how the story is told. And the Quo Vetus means where are you going? You know you're supposed to be in this city and preach the gospel. Again, not in the Bible, might be purely legend. But um, then he goes back to Rome. He's held in the Mamertine prison. I've been there. It's Mm. a dark, dank cell sort of underneath the ground at one edge of the Roman Forum. It's underneath a modern-day church. And Mm. eventually they took him out to the Vaticanus Mountain over on the other side of the Tiber River. And they're about to crucify him, the story goes. And he says, no, 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 you can't do that to me. That's too good for me. That's how Jesus Mm. died. Do you know the story?
1: I do, yeah. So? Yeah, so they crucified him upside down.
0: That's right, head down. And um, we're reasonably certain that most of that story is true. Um, In those days, the Vaticanus area was basically a slum and a garbage dump, and so they took him out there and probably is buried there. There are some really silly stories that are attached to this whole thing when you go to the Mamertine prison. There's a staircase. They've just finished renovating it, and they, they messed up my whole story, but... There used to be a staircase going down into the cell, and there's a sort of a dent, an imprint on the wall. And there's a little sign, and uh, it's in Italian. And the sign basically says, um, this is the spot where the soldiers shoved, not word for word here, I'm paraphrasing right. it, shoved Peter down the stairs, and his head hit the wall and uh, they left the miracle. Well, what miracle? The dent in the wall. Apparently, mm-hmm. Peter's head was so hard, so rock hard, that it actually left a dent in a stone wall. And it's a funny story because Peter's character kind of matches that in the Bible, right? Definitely. The stone-headed preacher. So um, in the middle of the 2nd century uh, A.D., uh, Christians identified this simple grave in the Vatican necropolis. The necropolis, they dug underneath the Vatican, and they found this ancient burial ground of Christians way down deep in the ground. And they say that's where Peter's body was buried. Um, And they did find a tomb. The only thing we know is that it does date to the first or the second century A.D. Uh, but is it Peter? I don't know. I don't. You know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So did he go? I believe there's enough circumstantial evidence. There's enough historical talk. There are enough stories that the answer is yes. Peter went. What about Paul? Well, we know Paul went to Rome um, for sure because he went there to stand trial and appeal to Caesar. The Bible does say that much. And he could go there and appeal because he was actually a Roman citizen. So the book of Acts tells us he did go there. And, of course, they couldn't crucify him because you can't Mm -hmm. crucify a Roman citizen. Just can't do it. Um, So he was taken out to an area, they believe. Uh, known as today as the Abbey of the Three Fountains. I've been there. Mm. And uh, they cut off his head. They beheaded him. Mm. More fitting punishment for a Roman citizen. What's curious today, you go in the church that they built on the spot, and we built churches on everything historical all over the world. Yeah. There are these three springs of water in the ground, and they've got holes in the church floor. You can see these springs. And on mm. the wall above each hole, they show a picture of Paul's head, and the floor is sloped. So Paul's head is above one fountain, and it's rolling down a hill, and it's at the next fountain, and so it chops off his head. The story is when they chopped off his head, it bounced three times, and every time it hit the ground, a spring of water came up out of the ground. Wow. It's nonsense. That's baloney. That is just—I'm not eating that. I'm not buying that. That's not the truth. But uh, I'm reasonably certain that probably is the spot where they did chop off his head. So uh, were they both in Rome, and did they both die there? I'm saying yes for sure on Paul, and yes— uh, 99.99% certain on Peter.
1: Yeah, oh, okay. that's pretty good. What else you got? Did Paul ever visit Spain? Uh, too hard
0: of a question. You take that one.
1: I'll, I'll let you take it. Okay. Listen, <laughs> You're did, the Bible uh, expert, remember? Yeah.
0: Did Paul ever visit Spain? The answer is probably yes. And there's actually something behind this question. We may end up doing this in two parts, like before and after the break. But okay. did he go to Spain? Yeah. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 15. Take a look at this in verse 22. Go ahead and do me the honors of reading that for me.
1: Okay. It says, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. So
0: this is Paul writing to the Romans. Keep going.
1: Okay. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, To where? To where? To Spain. So
0: is he planning to go to Spain? Yes. Yes. Okay. Keep going.
1: I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you. If first I may enjoy your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Okay,
0: jump down to verse 28.
1: Uh, It says, therefore, when I have reformed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain.
0: Okay, so he's writing to the Romans. He's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to go to Spain, but I'm going to go to Spain by way of you You. through the city of Rome. So what do we know so far? He absolutely intended to go to Spain. But did he ever go?
2: Hmm.
0: Well, that's where the Bible story leaves us hanging. We don't, we don't know. know. Some people say, no, no, he went to Rome, then he died there. But the early church, you go back to the records of the earliest Christians, and they say, absolutely, yes, he went to Spain. So there's a guy by the name of Clement who becomes the bishop of Rome toward the end of the first century. And he's writing this in a letter known as the first letter of Clement, okay? Mm-hmm. Here's what it says. Just happened to have this in my pocket. <laughs> or I peeked at the questions. Yeah. Either or. Yeah. After he had been in uh, seven times in chains, this is Clement preaching about Paul. After he had been in seven times in chains and had been driven into exile and had been stoned and preached in the East and in the West, he won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. Mm-hmm. Now, in those days... The farthest limits of the west would be either the west coast of Africa or the west coast of Europe. And if you look at a map, you've got Portugal and Spain hanging out into the west into the Atlantic Ocean. So this is about 20 years after Paul dies. Clement is saying, remember how Paul went to the limits of the west. Well, that's where Spain is. So there is a suggestion there, but that's not quite enough to build our case on. There's an old document known as the Muratorian Fragment, and it kind of says the same thing. And the Muratorian Fragment has content. It was discovered much later, but it had content that we know was written in the sort of around the end of the second century, 170 AD or so. Here's what it says in the Muratorian Fragment. Moreover, the acts of all the apostles were written in one book. That would be the book of Acts. Acts, right? right? For most excellent Theophilus... Luke compiled the individual events that took place in his presence. So we know that Luke addresses Theophilus in the book of Acts. Uh, as he plainly shows, by omitting the martyrdom of Peter, see, we talked about that earlier. We did. Right? The book of Acts doesn't tell us about his death, as well as the departure from the city of Rome when he journeyed to Spain. Mm. So this fragment from the second century is reminding us, look, we didn't record the death of Peter. In the um, in the book of Acts, neither did we write down that moment when Paul went to Spain. So right. he's saying Paul went. Cyril of Jerusalem. And this is now in the fourth century. He's a theologian in Jerusalem, and he says this in one of his lectures. Paul, who from Jerusalem even to Illyricum, fully preached the gospel and even instruct and instructed even imperial Rome and carried the earnestness of his preaching. Oh, I'm stumbling on my words. <laughs> carried the earnestness of his preaching as far as. Spain, Spain, right? Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople. He's known as one of the great preachers of the early centuries of the church. He's preaching a sermon on 2 Timothy, and he says this, For after Paul, he, had been at Rome, he returned to Spain. But whether he came again to these parts, we do not know. So the the almost unanimous testimony of the early church is that Paul kept his word. Hmm. Went to Spain through Rome. Now here's what's interesting. As I was studying this, um... There's this group in the north of Italy in the Piedmont Valleys known as the Waldensians, and there's something yeah. of an enigma. They don't match the rest of medieval Christianity. They have their own uh, scriptures known—well, they have a Bible, but it's not the Vulgate of Jerome, a Latin Bible. It's a much earlier version known as the Italic. And some of them even continue to keep the seventh-day Sabbath, even though Rome had um, switched to the first day of the week by the time of Constantine and a little bit after that. Um, and so people have wondered, where did these people come from? They're so unique, yeah. right? And they, their, their belief systems sort of match the, the belief systems we find in the book of Acts. So one theory says the Waldensians were Christians that fled from Rome when Nero was killing people. Uh, and that's possible. It's not that far up to those mountains, and the mountains are a good place to hide.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, but there are some Waldensian villages, not all of them. Uh, And their library was burned to the ground in the 1500s, so we did lose Mm -hmm. their official written records. But some Waldensian villages actually remember that their origins were with Paul. They said Mm -hmm. Paul on his way to Spain from Rome would have to, and if he went over land, he would have to go right through their valley. So there's actually a possibility that Paul was the one who raised up the Waldensian movement. Now, not all villages agree, you know, this is one theory among many. But it's fascinating to me that Paul said he was going to go to Spain through Rome, and what do you know? Look at that. Yeah. You explain that. You over-explain that so much that we ran out of time again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend to over-explain.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think we answered the question, though, right?
1: I think we did, and we learned yep. while answering.
0: Yeah, he probably did go to Spain. We're going to take another break here. Grab a pen and paper. You want to write down this amazing offer from the people at The Voice of Prophecy, and then Natalie and I will be right back with some more Bible questions.
2: Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, (laughs) Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from Director Doug at discoverymountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's discoverymountain.com.
0: And we're back. This is round three. Natalie the Grand Inquisitor <laughs> asking questions of me and shoving bamboo under my fingernails if I get them wrong.
1: Oh my. Yeah, yeah I'm not a torturer. No. It's not. <laughs> no,
0: it's not. So far we've looked at a few interesting questions today. What was the first one again? Did Peter and Paul... No, first one was, was polygamy. The
1: polygamy question. And we
0: decided you're not a polygamist. We did. Yep. Decide. And the second one, did Peter and Paul both die in Rome? Did Paul ever go to Spain? I find those early <laughs> centuries fascinating because... You know, there's this statement in John's gospel that says, that's the story of Jesus. He ends by saying, but if we were to write down everything that Jesus did and said, there wouldn't be enough books in the whole world Mm. to describe it all. And that leaves me frustrated. It's like, really? There's so much more we don't know? We didn't get to hear it? Why would you tell me there's more and then just end the story without giving me more?
1: Leave you on a cliffhanger. But we get to have those questions answered when we go to heaven.
0: I think that's true. The books are open and... Maybe they have tape. Well, probably not tape. We've—I I used to say that in the old days. What if they have tape in heaven, right? And yeah. now we've even abandoned tape. You got to figure they got something better. Probably something better. I can't wait to hear the stories that I didn't get to hear. Yeah. Um, but I do like piecing together the history of the early Christian Church. There are all these tantalizing clues everywhere as to mm-hmm. how Christianity spread across the Western Roman Empire. And um, some of the work that I've done historically, I mean, you know that I didn't like history before I was a Christian, but as a Christian, wow, so much to learn. There there is. And I'm fascinated by the way that barbarians became Christians over the next 1,000 years or so Mm -hmm. after Christ. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but our ancestors, at least on my side, the Frisians— They were some of the more stubborn Christian converts.
1: I wouldn't have guessed. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know. Terribly stubborn. I think we beheaded the first Christian missionary that came to our part of the world. His Uh. name was Boniface. And Boniface, we were pagans. Let's be honest. We were worshiping trees. Mm. And uh, to put a stop to that, Boniface cut down our holy tree, sacred tree. Mm. And so essentially, your ancestors looked at each other and said, well, if he cuts down the tree, we think it's fair to cut off his head. So they beheaded him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now and the rest of the story is brutal. They open a case and discover some wine, and they drink it, get drunk, and then they start arguing about who gets what because there oh, wasn't boy. much. They thought there might be money somewhere. Right. And so they stabbed each other to death. Oh, so okay. not only did they behead Boniface, they got drunk and stabbed each other to death, and nobody mm-hmm. was left by the end of the day. Wow. Those are your people. My Those are your people. people. Your Eventually people. we did come to Christ, though. We did come yeah. to Christ, and uh, wow. stubbornly. Hmm. So I do find that fascinating. All right, what else have you got? I mean, that kind of tied into what we're talking Did Paul visit Spain? We have to piece together the possibility from history. The same yeah. with Peter going to, um, to Rome. And I think the answer to both those is yes, but we have to piece it together, and we don't have 100% certainty.
1: Right. Well, this next question is actually about Paul as well. It oh, says, good. Okay. Yeah, it says, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh?
0: Okay. Well, we don't really know. Uh, there are theories. He doesn't elaborate any more than that. That's kind of like saying, there's so many more stories about Jesus, and I'm not going to tell you there wouldn't be enough time. <laughs> right. Paul just says he's got a thorn in the flesh, something that kind of bothers him. Let's take a look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. I'll let you read that for me.
1: Okay, and it says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure.
0: I used to make I used to make a little joke out of that. Satan loves buffets, <laughs> but that's that's I know it's the worst joke. It's the total dad joke, right? Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Okay. But notice what it says there: lest I should be exalted above measure by the mm-hmm. abundance of the revelation. So he's an apostle. God is showing him things, uh, yeah. but he's given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to sort of make his life a little harder. Yeah. Um, And then notice what it says in verse 8.
1: Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me.
0: Okay, keep going. Just keep keep plugging along.
1: And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong.
0: So Mm. look at the lesson that's here. Like Satan's doing something to discourage him, but God's allowing it. It doesn't suggest that God's the author of it, but then he goes and prays to God three times. Please let this stop, whatever this thorn in the flesh is. Let this stop. And God's answer is, I'm strong enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is going to be made perfect in your Weakness. weakness. And so sometimes in this life, ahead of glory, ahead of the kingdom, mm. God allows things to beset us. In this case it says he's worried. He says, I'm I'm pretty convinced that if something didn't keep me in line, maybe my ego would get out of control. Mm. And so he's looking at it as a positive. He says, in that case, I'm gonna take this. If God's allowing this, I'm gonna take pleasure in the thing that's going wrong. Right. Because God's obviously allowing it for some reason. Now the big yeah. question is what Was this thorn in the flesh? There are a number of theories. Um, Some people say it's his bad eyesight that he's losing his eyesight. And there's some circumstantial evidence to back that up. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul's writing to the Galatians saying, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. And they're kind of implying, wow, he's making giant letters. He's creating the first large print Bible, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, The book of Galatians was first published in large print, right? Look how big (laughs) my letters are. It's like he's stopping as he's writing saying, oh man, look how big, I'm so blind. And they're saying, see, he's blinded why would we think that well at his conversion experience on the road to damascus he's blinded for three days after seeing a bright light and then it says scales fall from his eyes so the theory runs he's losing his eyesight it's been damaged uh and he's going blind and it bothers him because he loves books right right when when he's in prison he's saying somebody send for my books i gotta have my books He, he writes that somewhere else and of course if you're losing your eyesight and you love reading and writing It's hard to read. That would be a thorn in the flesh. So please, God, don't let me go blind. But God allows it. That's one theory. There's another theory. I don't put much stock in this one because it's brand new. It hasn't existed over the centuries. But we all know that Paul wasn't married later in life. He would have been married at one point because he was um, a member of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin... You had to have a wife. You had to be married. That's circumstantial, so we guess that he probably did have a wife. It's obvious later in life he did not. Right. Did she die? Did she leave him when he became a Christian? We don't really know. We don't mm-hmm. know. But some people say, well, maybe the thorn in the flesh is some kind of sexual temptation, hmm. either temptation you know, with the ladies or, <laughs> or maybe even a same-sex attraction. But that yeah. theory is brand new, and it only showed up in the 20th century. I don't put late 20th century. There was one notorious American bishop who started that. It's basically rumor. We have no historical context on that at all. So uh, that one, historically, probably pretty unlikely. Here's one that's fascinating, and uh, I would look at this one. Some people say, look, he's writing to the Corinthians, and when you read the letter to the Corinthians, they're really a very poorly behaving church. They're miserably—everything that can go wrong goes wrong there. Yes. Yeah, and I take some comfort in that as a former church pastors, like, okay, I thought we had problems in our congregation. I like to go to the New Testament and read Paul's letter to some of these churches, and I feel better. It's like, okay, it was at least as bad in the first century, maybe even worse. So if you look at verse 10 again, it says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, Hmm. in needs—he's giving context for the statement—in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. He's being made fun of, he's being rebuked, he's being persecuted, he's being distressed. And so some people think maybe it's the Corinthian church himself. Maybe Hmm. he's about to have a stroke because they're so—not a literal stroke, I mean an emotional stroke—because they just keep—this is his second letter. He has to write a second letter. And this is a huge chunk of the New Testament. This church had issues, and so maybe the thorn in his flesh was this congregation that couldn't get their act together. Hmm. However— They're all just theories, uh, and we don't really know. But I'd ask you this. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh actually is, but what's the object lesson there, do you think? And what's the real lesson behind what he's writing?
1: Well, I think that we can all apply it to our hard situations and realize we can lean on Christ or basically whine about our sin. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to say that, but I think Christ is saying— hey, I know you're going through this, and I don't like to see you go through it, but I'm allowing it to make you a stronger person, and maybe it'll help you to help others. There
0: are preachers today who say, um, if you follow Christ, it's easy street. You'll be good-looking, you'll Mm -hmm. be wealthy, it'll be easy street. God wants you to be prosperous, rich, and good-looking, and amazing. Uh, What would this say to that? I mean, here's the apostle, and he's prayed three times, Lord, let this thing, whatever it is, pass from me. My life is hard enough as it is without this— And God says, no, I'm going to be strength for you. And I Mm -hmm. think that would apply today.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's our next question?
1: Our next question says, what does the Bible say about genetic predisposition to sin?
0: Oh, my Mm. goodness. Um, How much time do we have before the break? Um, Okay. Okay. Obviously, the Bible doesn't really talk about genetics in the modern sense. The the concept is certainly there, and we'll get to that um, today. But... um, well, here's an interesting—the idea is this. Are we born sinful? Can you pass on your sinful tendencies to your kids? Does it get passed from generation to generation? Let's take a look at an interesting passage in the book of Ephesians, and here it's talking about salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 with me, and follow along. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So, let me pause here. Even if you did discover that you got a tendency towards something that got passed down from your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on, if there's a genetic component, you know, let's say that I, I love getting drunk. I don't, but you I don't. love getting drunk, and I discover, my goodness, I've got a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Is that an excuse for living a drunken life and, you know, neglecting my family? No. No. He's saying you were were dead in trespasses and sins, and he has made you alive. So even if you were born with a predisposition to it, a natural tendency to it, it's not an excuse because God opens a door and offers a way out. Mm -hmm. Verse 2, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, it's the devil, uh, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, Now look at that phrase, sons of disobedience. If you're a son of disobedience, what was your dad?
1: He was disobedient.
0: He was disobedient, right? right? The phrase itself implies that there's a line of descent among sinners. Ever since Adam and Eve, we have all been born as sons of disobedience, daughters of disobedience. We've been born with a tendency toward sin. Verse 3, among whom also we once... We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the world, and were by what? Nature. Were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So here Paul says, quite plainly, you were born to want to fulfill the desires of the flesh and the mind. You were born a child of wrath. So, you know, when you were little, I'm going to tell stories on you. You know, I didn't have to teach you how to lie. I didn't. I didn't have to teach you that. It's like, did you do this? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you hit your sister? No. 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 Of course no. not. You no, know, you figured that all out on yourself. And you figured out hitting your sister all by yourself, too. Yeah. And your sister figured out hitting you as hitting well. Back. We are born children of wrath. I hear the music, so we're going to have to pick that up and uh, and talk about being a child of wrath and maybe what some of the solutions are afterwards. So first answer is, yeah, is there a genetic com- component to sin, something that's passed down from generation to generation? Yes, because sin is not just acts we commit. It's actually what we've become. Our whole being has been distorted away from God's ideal by the fact that we're sinners. Let's take the break and come back to that thought in just a moment.
2: As you may know, the Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com/give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com/give.
0: You toss and turn in bed and find yourself awake in the middle of the night. Your mind is in turmoil, and you're overstressed with the stuff of everyday life. You need peace and calm in the middle of the storm. The answer you need is found in our free Discover Bible guides. You can get yours by contacting us at VOP.com. Click on the tab that says Study. Or call me at 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933. Okay, I think this is the last segment I'm going to be able to hold you hostage in the studio <laughs> before you finally go to the airport and get on your plane.
1: So I am getting my ride to the
0: airport. Yeah, I'll give you a ride okay. to the airport. You've been very good for at least two programs in studio today. Thanks. And uh, you're pretty good at raising the Bible questions. Uh, I think the next time we get together, maybe are you going to come home for Christmas or something?
1: I'll come home for Christmas.
0: Oh, I'll be home. I won't sing. Okay, good. Yeah, I won't sing. I'll be home for Christmas. We'll do a Christmas show, and I ask you questions.
1: Oh, that'd be yeah, interesting. Yeah, nail
0: you to the wall. Bring your sister in here, too. Yeah. And we'll do tell-alls. Who really broke that window that time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, we were kind of talking about that before, because the question again, Natalie, was what? The question that we're addressing?
1: It says, what does the Bible say about genetic predisposition to sin?
0: Right. And so there's a number of dimensions to this idea, but the, the biggest one is... Can sinful tendencies get passed on from generation to generation? And the answer, according to the Bible, is sure, yes. We're called the sons of disobedience, and it kind of implies that there's a line of disobedient people. Right. And it says there is no one who has not sinned. Where did we first learn it? Well, with our first fathers, you know, Mm -hmm. father and mother, Adam and Eve. And once they sinned, something shifted. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is deeper than that with humanity. Um, we've been so morphed that the Bible says that we we couldn't do right if we wanted to. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And can a leopard change his spots? No. We're, we seem to find ourselves helpless. There's something in us that gravitates towards selfishness, rebellion against God. And uh, Paul says in he, Ephesians chapter two and verse three that we were nature's uh, na- oh, we were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else. Everybody's a child of wrath. And the wrath of God falls on sin. He's basically saying we're all born with the wrong desires. We're Mm -hmm. inclined toward the wrong thing. And then the Bible also does talk about sin being punished down through the generations. Let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. I'll give you an example of this, but then we're really going to have to slow down and explain it. Okay, Okay. Exodus chapter 20. Go ahead and read me the commandment in verse 4.
1: but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay,
0: let's take a look at this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Hmm. Now, notice that it talks here about the sins of the parents having some kind of an effect on their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And it says that the iniquity of the fathers is visited upon the children. Now we already know from what Paul taught us that this is absolutely true. We do pass our tendencies on to our own kids. Um, That's the worst moment in a parent's life, Mm -hmm. when you see your own sort of negative traits coming out in your kids. Not -hmm. that you have many negative traits, but I don't suppose you remember what happened on the freeway in Toronto when you were two sitting in the back seat in your little car seat. Do You you don't know, do you?
1: I don't know if I remember.
0: Now, here is here's what happened i'm driving mom's in the passenger seat you're in the back you're two years old and you right. love going out for rides and we would play that <laughs> game we talked about yeah is so and so in the bible and right. you've always loved bible study and you would play along as so and so in the bible but then a trucker cuts me off mm. and i mean he comes so close to the front of my car you should know about this because you got hit by somebody in traffic the yes. other day yeah it's
1: not a pleasant experience no so this
0: trucker nearly takes me out on the freeway he swerves in front of me. I have to swerve into another line. My knuckles are white. I, s- I finally swerve back into my lane. My heart is racing. I'm clearly a little agitated. And what does little Natalie do? She starts yelling at the trucker. And you called him a name. It wasn't a dirty word or anything, but you called yeah. him a name. And your mother looked at me. Where did she learn that? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right. I don't know. But you were yelling at the trucker at two and calling them names for cutting us off in traffic. And shaking your little fist at him and stuff, and uh, and then I thought, oh my goodness, I really need to rein myself in around this little one. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of so your tendencies do get passed on. That's true. Um, I didn't enjoy watching my own negative traits come out in you. You're no. you're a much nicer kid than I ever was, and you're a much nicer young adult than I was. Um, oh, thanks. But here's what this is not talking about. There is something that passes on from generation to generation, but this is not talking about. Punishing children for the sins of their parents. It's not no. talking about holding you responsible, culpable, guilty for something I did. Right. right? So I rob a bank and God holds you accountable. Does that sound fair? No. No. Um, but if I pass on a tendency to you and you act on that tendency, is that your fault? Absolutely. Yes, it is, because God offers a way out. He understands our infirmity, the book of Hebrews says. He understands we're weak. That's why he invites us to come and lean on him and beg him. And Mm -hmm. and look, I can get you through this. There is no temptation among you such as is common to all men, Paul writes. We all sin. God understands. So it's not talking about you being held accountable for what I did. And I am not personally accountable for Adam and Eve doing what they did. I'm accountable for what I did. And I know this based on Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. Let's take a look at that one. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Go ahead and read that verse for me, Natalie.
1: The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself.
0: So you see that? Yeah. There is something that's passed on but the Son does not bear the guilt of the Father, no. and the Father doesn't bear the guilt of the Son. God is perfectly fair. We don't bear each other's guilt. And your, your account is your account. My account is my account. Here's the bad news. All of our accounts are pretty bad. And if you've ever been worried that you oh, stand yeah. condemned in front of the throne of God, you may as well relax. You are utterly condemned in front of the throne of God. We have all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. But I'm responsible for me, and you're responsible for you. The good news is, is Jesus assumes responsibility for all of us, takes our place at the cross of Christ, and now it's as if, it's as if when they go into Natalie Boonster's file in the filing cabinet of heaven and pull out your record, it's gone, and it's Jesus' record in its place. Yeah. Clean, right? Clean. So we don't carry each other's guilt. We are, though, born with that predisposition to sin. Sometimes something wells up in you, and you're doing, having a wrong thought, doing something, and you didn't plan to have the wrong thought. It's not like, okay, no. today at 2 o'clock, I'm going to get angry at my sister, and yep. I'm going to call her a name. No, no. it just kind of wells up in you and right. happens, right? Because you have a predisposition to these things as a human being, as a member of the Sons of Wrath. That sounds right. like a motorcycle gang. The Sons, Sons of, of Wrath. Of- yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're all in that gang. All right. Yeah, but it's not an excuse. We can be set free. And here's something I love. Look at how Paul talks about being set free from our natural sinful tendencies. So again, the question is, do we have a genetic predisposition? Yes, we do. Can we break free from that? Not on our own, but there is a path out. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verse 9.
1: It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of All God? All right.
0: Well, who does that include?
1: Everyone. Everyone. We're all unrighteous.
0: We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then it continues, do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor—this is quite a list coming up. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners Mm -hmm. will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what's interesting. All of us are in that list somewhere. I I can take that list into any house in America or the world today, and everybody's on that list somewhere. We're all there. We've broken God's commandments, and God says if you've broken one, you have broken them all. But now look at verse 11. This is the power here. He's saying you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, it says the unrighteous won't. So I think, ooh, who does that include? Then I read the list. Oh, no, it includes me. Now what? Verse 11.
1: And such were some of you.
0: Whoa, such Mm -hmm. what?
1: were some of you. That's
0: past tense. Keep Mm -hmm. reading.
1: Were, yeah. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God.
0: All right. So Paul walks in basically, again, the Corinthians. We talked about that earlier. Big problems in that church. And they have a whole bunch of people that have done all these things in this list, and then he says, but remember, that was what you were, and you Mm -hmm. aren't any longer. You've been washed and cleansed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So basically, it comes down to this. Are we genetically predisposed towards sin? Yes, we are. Is that an excuse? No, it's not, because there is a way out, and that way out is Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some people panic, and they think, well, then I'm going to become sinlessly perfect. No, focus on Jesus. Let him deal with that. And focus on the work he gives us to do. That's sharing the gospel. Let him worry about that. Okay, let's do one more, because we got, like, only four minutes left.
1: Okay. This question says, was Paul forced to fight wild animals in the arena?
0: Fascinating question. Mm, And it's not one many people think about, but there is a passage in the Bible that says so. And that blows people's minds. I only stumbled across this a little while ago. Uh, it's mentioned. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32 with me. Go ahead and read that one.
1: Okay. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die.
0: Wow. So hmm. it says, if, I have, <laughs> if in the manner of men I fought with beasts in Ephesus. Now, that was pretty popular back in the Roman Empire. Put right. people in the ring, fight to death with the lions, and, 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 and what have you. Uh, But did that literally happen? Probably not. If you look at the context, uh, he says, If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's nothing in the future, why not just do whatever you want? Yeah. Right? Do whatever you want. Look, if Paul had literally been thrown to the wild animals, uh, it means that they took away his Roman citizenship because he was a Roman citizen, Mm -hmm. and you weren't allowed to throw Roman citizens to the animals. You couldn't crucify them. You couldn't throw them into the arena. So he would have to be stripped of his Roman citizenship in order to be thrown to the wild animals. But we know that he still has it later on because he takes advantage of his citizenship, and he can go to Caesar in Rome and appeal to him. This is probably a euphemism. I fought with wild beasts or with the beasts. Mm. Um, That's probably a euphemism for taming your own animal passions, these natural tendencies that erupt in your soul.
1: Oh, okay.
0: The ancient Greek philosopher, wasn't really a Bible author, of course, uh, described wrestling your animal passions as fighting them in the arena. So if you notice in the original text, after he says, I fought with wild beasts, if the dead do not rise, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's no future, no heaven, no resurrection, I'll do whatever I want then. Mm-hmm. But in the no, he doesn't want to do whatever he wants, so he's fighting against something. Eat, drink, tomorrow we die. He's fighting against the natural tendency to indulge in his natural sinful passions. Mm. And that's what comes up in Romans chapter 7, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to, this is Paul writing, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, my body, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's he describing? This struggle where in my head I want to do what's right, but in my flesh I do what's wrong. Right, he's describing the very struggle that in the ancient days was described by fighting with the wild beasts. Mm. So he's just descri- now. Here's what I think um, is really fascinating. I love these passages because here is the greatest Christian missionary of all time. We're talking the yeah. Apostle Paul. He writes like a huge chunk for sheer real estate in the new testament he takes up most of the space you know he writes most of the books maybe not most of the real estate but he writes the largest number of books i had somebody dispute that a while ago but no he did write the largest number of books of anyone and yet he still struggled with his own tendencies right and i'm thinking man i know paul's going to be in heaven
2: yeah and if
0: i lean on jesus i'm going to make it too god's got my back and i find that good news i don't know about you
1: Well, it's amazing news, and it shows that you don't have to feel like you're a bad Christian because you struggle with things. You just have to give it to God because he loves us.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's okay to struggle. I think it was Martin Luther said, it's okay to have the birds fly over your head, but you don't have to let them build a nest in your hair.
1: There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to
0: indulge it. Through (laughs) the power of Christ, you can resist it. So I think to that extent, we have all fought with wild beasts.
1: Absolutely. Oh, yeah.
0: And uh, we all have sinful tendencies, but through the power of Christ— you know, I might not be perfect, but I'll be better tomorrow with Jesus than I was today. And then mm-hmm. better yet, the, I'm still rotten, but I'm better today than I was yesterday. And with yeah. Jesus, every day is better. That's Natalie, you got to go away to college. so i got to go. Yeah, you've got to go. Thanks for joining me on the show. Enjoy the semester in your communications program. I'll listen for your radio show. And thank you all for joining us today on Disclosure. Until next time, I'm Sean Boonstrom.